Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest, Jeff Katerba, is a cartoonist, writer, musician and creativity advocate. He was born in Omaha, Nebraska, and during the summer before his senior year of high school, he was struck by lightning. Instead of taking him to the hospital, his dad gave him a shot of Jack Daniels. Since 1989, Jeff has been a nationally recognized, award-winning editorial cartoonist. His cartoons are distributed through Kegel Cartoons to 850 newspapers around the globe and have appeared in such publications as the New York Times, the Washington Post, Dallas Morning News and USA Today. In 2010, two of Guterba's cartoons flew aboard Space Shuttle Discovery. He is lead singer, guitarist and songwriter for the Prairie Cats, a swing and jump blues band he formed in 1998. The Prairie Cats have performed at the South by Southwest Music Festival, Windows on the World at the World Trade Center, and at the Derby Lounge in Hollywood. Jeff also speaks publicly about Tourette Syndrome and has written a memoir called Inklings. And in case there was any question, he now avoids thunderstorms wherever possible. Jeff, thanks for being on the show. You're, you're welcome. Although I have been known to chase a tornado or two on, on occasion. And I, I will mention, you know, you, you mentioned the, the Tourette's and I'm happy to talk about that. I, I, it, it, the Tourette's sort of comes and goes and uh, I don't have the kind where I start swearing. I mean, I do swear, but th- that may, that's nothing to do with, has nothing to do with Tourette's, but I have a particularly weird twitch going on today and it's uh, kind of a sniffing, sniffing one. So I don't have a cold, but if you hear me sniffing, <laughs> It's not a problem with the microphone. It's uh, it's it's me. So so in that case, describe Tourette's syndrome. I would imagine that some people may be familiar. Some people might think they know it, but but t- tell tell us about that. Yeah, well, it's a it's a, a, a neurological uh, a disorder uh, or syndrome, I guess. Um, and it it's a situation where uh, the brain pretty much demands that I twitch so it's it's involuntary and like something like parkinson's so i do have i can control it to a degree uh where but my brain at any one moment uh and again depending on if i'm lacking sleep or if i'm stressed out or forever whatever weird reason i might i might just be twitchy but my brain will demand that i i jerk my mouth or stretch my mouth or blink my eyes or sniff or uh wiggle my toes or jerk my knee and just since we've been sitting here for you know a minute or two i've probably had uh 40 or 50 requests from my brain to do that and uh so it's exhausting to constantly be uh telling my brain no um but it's also exhausting to give in uh because if i give in uh it doesn't really satiate or say if that satiate 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 yes i'm not satisfied when i when i twitch so it just keeps wanting to keep going you alluded to one of the stereotypes of Tourette's, which is the association of uh, swearing and you know the, the vulgar language that comes spontaneously with with that syndrome right so how has it affected your life yeah, well, and it's a so it's and it's genetic. So my dad had Tourette's, uh, although um, I wasn't a, a diagnosed until I was uh, in my late twenties. And uh, when I was growing up, 
he said that that he and I just had these had what he called nervous nervous habits. And uh, when I told him that I'd been diagnosed with Tourette's and that he had, you know, most likely had Tourette's, he said that, you know, he grew up poor and he couldn't afford a syndrome. So, um, but uh, it has, you know, it's funny because in a weird way, I'm sort of glad that I wasn't diagnosed um, as, a, as a kid because I didn't identify myself. I didn't define myself by having Tourette syndrome. On the other hand, um, I know people who, and I was picked on occasionally for my twitches. So maybe it would have been good for me to, to know what it was. And, but it's shocking even now, uh, kind of going off on a tangent, but it's shocking not even now um, for, I know some, some people very close to me who have Tourette's and are in grade school and the teachers and the school uh, administrators don't really understand it and and these kids are getting punished anyhow i uh when i finally found out that i had tourette's then suddenly i was angry at it and and i had i was glad that i had a name for it but i was like you know frustrated and realizing oh this is you know this is why i make all these weird uh twitches and and uh and i after i worked through the anger part i came to realize that um it was actually a blessing in disguise uh there are there are uh it's early on in the study of this but there are some neurologists who believe that there's an actual connection between tourette syndrome and creativity um and i do believe uh that if not for the tourettes i would not do the things that i do and um in all the various myriad ways of you know cartoons writing and playing music now i don't know if that's because when i'm concentrating on something that helps me calm down so when i'm drawing or when i'm on stage singing a song i'm generally not twitchy so maybe it's just that or maybe there is something about my brain that allows me to think in these different formats um i also know that uh the tourettes has uh you know it it makes me feel vulnerable and exposed and uh especially you know say um i'm i'm out on you know this this happened i was out on a first date and i was twitching and i had to explain it that's a very vulnerable position to, to be in but i also believe that uh you know i at some point i i embraced it and i looked at it as a blessing and i was grateful for it and one of the things i try to share with people, uh, you know, uh, as a self-described creativity advocate is that we all have our challenges. We all have obstacles and our vulnerabilities. And when we embrace those, uh, that is uh, what can lead to, uh, you know, authenticity and creativity. Um, so yeah, I don't know exactly how much of what I do is related to Tourette's, but I think there's a component of it. And I'm, I've convinced myself, uh, that without it, I wouldn't do the things that I do. Well, I have to ask, just because I feel compelled to do so, yeah. but are you finding a silver lining to Tourette's that maybe minimizes its impacts? Or is it really just a case that you've, you've developed a life that isn't defined by Tourette's, it just happens to be um, as much a part of you just as the fact that you happen to be white and you happen to be a man? And um, Yeah, I don't, you know, boy, uh, the silver lining thing, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would go that far, uh, actually, uh, but definitely, uh, you know, I've incorporated it into my, to my being, into who, into my 
the persona that, that I tell myself that I am. And, and so it just, I guess I'm contradicting myself in a way because I was saying earlier that I don't define my, define myself as someone, you know, with Tourette's. And yet when I define myself, I am someone who happens to have Tourette's, but I have Tourette's and I do these other things and it's sort of all integrated. Um, I try not to think about it too much because, uh, my brain is always working and going in different tangents. And, uh, that's probably a rabbit hole that I would keep swirling into and never, never get out of. Well, I think a lot of people think about creativity and maybe this is a stereotype and I, I don't know that we need to unpack what is genius and, and what is art and what is creativity, but you do describe yourself in your bio as a creativity advocate. And I wonder if you just tell me what, what does, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, again, it's, I, I believe that we are all creative in some way and okay, maybe uh, not everyone draws and paints or plays music. Maybe uh, the creativity doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, take that shape and maybe it's uh, more quiet. Maybe it's more interior. Um, but I recently met someone who um, makes, makes chocolate, makes excellent chocolate and her story is really interesting. I won't, I won't share it, but how she overcame some obstacles and, and in the process, um, opened a, a chocolate shop and is very creative in, in making these chocolates. And I just think that, you know, I, I, I get the opportunity to meet a lot of people who will say, wow, I wish, I wish I were creative. I wish I could do something creative. And I said, well, you can. And if it is playing a musical instrument, for example, you know, I've had people say, well, I'm too old to learn to play guitar or piano or whatever. Why? What is, <laughs> that's another thing. Like, I don't think about age. I don't see age. I don't, I, you know, they're anyway. So why not? What are you doing? I mean, yes, we have to make a living and people, you know, you have to work hard and, and, and feed your family, but if you really truly crave to do something creative, uh, I, I do believe that, you know, you will make a way, find a way to make, to make it happen. Um, and you know, and, and there may be other things that aren't as obvious as I said. So maybe it's whatever your profession is, whatever your calling is, if it's, maybe it's gardening or whatever, but, but if you really think about it, we are making creative decisions all the time in our lives and maybe it's just a simple thing like okay i have three kids and two of them have to get to soccer practice and the other one has to you know get to some other to ballet and it's strategizing and that is using a part of your creative brain um and i think that we do it more often than we think uh but i guess more than anything it just breaks my heart when people some people say to me hey i i I wish I could draw or, well, you can. And, um, you know, it, it, it just depends on, you know, if you want to spend the time to do it. But um, I really do believe that if it's something like drawing, that everyone can learn to draw, everyone can play a musical instrument. If you're not called to do it, if it's not what's in your heart, okay, fine. But if you truly feel a calling to do something creative, then why... Why wouldn't you pursue that?
strike me as someone who has, either because of natural inclination or hard work over your life, found a way to accept your vulnerability mm-hmm. and to maybe face yourself head on in ways that are uncomfortable for people. That can be hard for people. I think when you say the word creativity to people, it, it conjures anxiety, mm-hmm. deservedly or otherwise. And, and I would suggest, from what I'm hearing from you, that you think most people have a creative capacity that, that they're just afraid of trying to nurture because somehow it got maybe built into them early on that they weren't creative people, that they mm-hmm. weren't, you, you know, play gets beaten out of us pretty quickly. Yep. So how do you help people... How do you advocate for creativity when perhaps the burden isn't one of talent, but is one of mindset? Yeah, you boy, you, you hit the nail on the head because you're, you're right. A lot of it is mindset. And um, yeah, that's a, you know, that can be a challenge. Um, I, you know, I, as a, as a kid, I, I was fortunate in that um, I was encouraged or uh, allowed to <laughs> spend my time drawing or playing music. My dad was a drummer and was insistent that um, all of his kids learn to play the drums. And he would sit me behind his drum set and physically, you know, force me to hold the drumsticks. And I would be crying and whining and not wanting to do it. But I'm, you know, of course, later I was grateful. So I was lucky and fortunate in that regard. And I also had amazing teachers who uh, saw in, in me, uh, you know, the ability to, to draw. I will say that I, I, I feel like I, I've always had to work extra hard at it. I meet some people who truly do seem so naturally inclined to do whatever it is that they do. And I feel like I have to work extra hard. I feel like I do have that instinct, that calling to do it. And, but I have to work extra hard to do it. And, you know, I've lost a lot of sleep over the years, uh, in my twenties, I, I didn't sleep. I was freelancing and, and, and all of that. But, uh, I do think it is a mindset thing. And I think that, uh, this is, again, this is what I, you know, what I just, I, when I try to tell people that, you know, it, it there's no reason you can't, it's so, it, it, I get that it's, a, it, it can be a challenge, but it is ultimately so simple to say, I want to play the piano and, you know, I don't know really how else to elaborate on that, but, uh, you know, to paraphrase, you know, Nike to, to just do it. And I know that sounds simple. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure how else to, to answer that. I guess when I'm one-on-one with someone who is expressing the desire to do something creative, so I'll, I'll, I'll ask why, so why aren't you doing it? And they might give me any number of reasons. Well, maybe it's a financial uh, thing, obstacle, or maybe it's a time time thing. Okay, well, what? Look at your schedule. Look at your time, and you know, it, and, you know, I, I I know people who talk about wanting to do something, and yet. And I'm not judging here, but they express frustration that they're not doing their creative thing. And yet they spend their evening watching crappy TV. And again, I'm not judging that. That's not how I choose to do it. But I say, okay, well, take take an hour or get up an extra hour early. There's a, a writer I, I was reading about 
Um, she had uh, a few, uh, she had two or three kids, but she didn't want to take time away from their schedules. And, um, and I think she had a full-time job or something. So she would uh, make dinner and sp- spend uh, the evening with them and read them bedtime stories. And then she would sleep for from like eight to midnight or nine to one or something, and then get up and write for four or five hours and then take a quick nap and then get up again and make them breakfast and take them to school. That's it's a brutal schedule, but okay, she made it work and it's not, you know, everything changes. You're not going to be on that schedule forever, but she figured out a way and made sacrifices along the way. But, um, so I guess it just depends on how important is it to you to make it happen. And I get, I get that there are some situations. I'm not trying to make it sound like it's so easy that there are situations where people, especially families having to work and feed their kids and everything else. But if it's, if you have kids, for example, and you want to, do something musically. Well, make it a family, make it a family event, form a family band. I love all the suggestions and the encouragement. <laughs> you, know, and, <laughs> you know, and there are ways to get cheap instruments. I mean, it's not, you know, you can find it pretty cheap guitar at a pawn shop or on eBay or something. And I'm just sitting here aghast because the idea of getting up at midnight just kills me. <laughs> I know that's not what you're saying. Yeah, no, but I mean, I, but, and I'm not saying this like in some bragging, look at me kind of way, but, um, you know, I, I, when I was starting out, and granted, I was much younger and I couldn't do this now, but I was working full time and I was going to school full time and I was freelancing and playing in bands. And, you know, I would be drawing at, uh, you know, three, four in the morning, sometimes waking up at four in the morning with a big red spot on my forehead from having literally falling asleep on my drawing table, having drooled on the cartoon. Thankfully, I had waterproof ink, but you just you kind of do what you have to do. And, you know, if you're going to exhaust yourself and well, I mean, why not throw my thing is it's that extra hustle. It's that going the extra, not one step, but extra 10 steps, put everything into whatever your passion is. And if, if your passion is your job, great. If it's something else, figure, figure out a way to do it. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Boom, 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 boom. Gonna shoot you right down. Right off of your feet. Take you home with me. Put you in my house. Up and down the floor When you're talking to me That baby talk I like it like that Let's turn a little bit and talk about your work and career as a cartoonist and specifically an editorial cartoonist. And I wonder if you might explain what is an editorial cartoonist? 
Yeah, that's a good question because uh, for the longest time, um, my profession was called political cartooning. And I don't know when it, I mean, I still think of myself as a political cartoonist, but I think editorial cartoonist is broader because I'm not always just drawing on politics as I think was the case. You look back historically, you know, the late 1800s, you know, a good portion of the early, early 20th century. When those cartoons were, you know, kind of these, dark, heavy, not necessarily even funny, but serious, you know, political cartoons. And, um, you know, in my job, I, again, certainly do political cartoons, but I also try to mix it up. I try to keep it interesting for me and hopefully for the reader. So I might make social commentary. I might comment on technology or on rare occasion on sports, um, you know, on the condition of, of streets in Omaha, which you can draw all the serious cartoons you want about North Korea or any other, anything else. But it's when you draw about, you know, streets and weather that people (laughs) really react. And, and I assume throw in a cat or a dog as well. Yes. If you, you know, every once in a while, I'll just try to do like a lifestyle cartoon and just to freshen it up and to kind of keep the reader surprised. And especially, I don't know, especially these days, um, the political climate that it is, um, it's exhausting and for everybody, I think. And uh, it's so divisive, at least it seems that way. I still want to believe that most people are reasonable, rational people. But uh, yeah, so I try not to do something serious every day. So I might just do a lifestyle cartoon where two people are walking on a nice, crisp fall day and they're walking their, walking their dog, talking about, maybe they're talking about something in the news, but it's maybe a lighter approach. How do you balance your own personal politics, values, beliefs, and experiences with what might be industry expectations or the expectations of of people that buy the rights to use your cartoons? Yeah, I mean, I, everything I draw, I, I have a, so I'm a registered independent and I'm an equal opportunity cartoonist and I have a core set of principles and values and an internal compass that I follow, it may shift. Um, I'm a big believer that it's important for me to listen to others. I, the other thing that I'm out, I try to preach is that I think that, you know, it's really important for us to listen to one another. And by listening to each other, it doesn't mean that we have to agree. I try to listen. I try to be open. I have shifted my views on things over the years and evolved or shift, changed, whatever, um, you know, so I try to be open-minded and, uh, I have had disagreements with readers who, if it's civil, I welcome a civil discussion, even if we disagree. And I have, you know, changed my mind or shifted my thinking based on some of those conversations. Unfortunately, a lot of those, a lot of the comments come in or really rude and mean and, uh, and cruel. But so I have this core set principles in which I work out of, 
And I, my, my thing is to, you know, seek the truth and root my cartoons in good, good journalism, first and foremost. In fact, you know, I consume a great deal of news, certainly the Omaha world Herald, but any number of other news outlets, um, and from various, you know, uh, places on the spectrum. And I, again, tried my best to come up with what I believe is uh, truth. If in the course of me drawing a cartoon and making an opinion based on these facts, I upset someone then so be it. I I don't get up in the morning. I'm not a bomb thrower. I know cartoonists who are, and I know traditionally cartoonists have been that. More often than not lately, maybe it's because I'm getting older, but I feel like I have to be the adult in the room sometimes. And especially if I'm, uh, you know, refereeing a, a dispute on Facebook, um, I just, you know, too often find myself saying, hey, can we just please take a breath for a minute? And just, you know, calm down. So, um, you know, and I don't know if that's, that's certainly that's impacted my cartoons. I have drawn cartoons basically saying, hey, can we just, can we just chill out for a minute? Kind of like the opposite of spinal tap. Dial it, dial it down to dial 11. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Go to seven. <laughs> Seven's a great number. <laughs> <laughs> so... It would seem to me that in the times that you characterized as divisive, do cartoons, given their visual media and the ease and speed with which the nuance can be consumed by the brain, do they have a greater power to impact our social and cultural and political environment than would, for example, a well-researched but 1,000-word piece. Yes, I think that's probably true. And actually, even though I'm a cartoonist, that breaks my heart because I, I mean, I also write, but I love the written word. And I think um, one of my frustrations as a cartoonist and as someone who is a passionate centrist is that I can often see two sides to a story and sometimes the truth is mostly over there but sometimes it's over there and a little bit over here and that's extremely difficult to pull off in a, in a cartoon and and that is the expectation that you 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 get this cartoon that's generally going to be one panel maybe two occasionally I'll do a multi-panel cartoon but by and large it's you get one you get one shot and it is soaked into the brain by the reader very, very quickly. I think the average, uh, this is years ago, but I think the, the, there was a study done that the average amount of time a reader spends with an editorial cartoon is seven seconds. And I don't know if that's still the case now. And I try to put in nice, occasionally nice details to keep the reader there a little longer. But I don't have the opportunity to give, you know, both sides or, or, or the nuances, if not necessarily both sides, uh, but just the complexities. Issues are very complex. And that's why I don't think that everything is either left or right or red versus blue. And I get so sick of that because the truth 
the truth is often very, very complex to find. And, and that is where, as you say, a well-researched thousand word piece, you know, that's, that's where we should be, we should be focused. You know, uh, I kind of think of my cartoons as, you know, maybe the, you know, the gateway into getting to, you know, the reading, if you know, you're looking at the cartoon, the editorial page, either in the print or online, and then you'll stick with it and you'll read, you know, you'll read the letters, you'll read our editorials, read columns. Um, and I, and I think it's important to, as I said before, just to consume a variety of work from various sides of the aisle, you know? So you need to select what topic you are going to create a cartoon around, mm -hmm. but there is um, a world of news. But of course, we're recording one week before the total solar eclipse. So we have a universe of news for you to be selecting from. And so how do you go about saying under the deadlines that the news demands, you are going to pick one single topic to draw? Yeah, you know, I, I've been thinking that with the solar eclipse, I'm going to hang on to my glasses and just when things get really depressing, I'm just going to keep them on like all the time. <laughs> Maybe it'd be an interesting experiment for me to try to draw a cartoon while wearing those glasses because you can't see anything. I used to draw six new cartoons a week and um, realized that it was good to have a, a weekend, you know, off. But uh, although I... Um, I went in on on Sunday. This is being recorded. I I went in on Sunday yesterday to draw a cartoon on Charlottesville. I don't normally run in the Monday paper, but I felt compelled to go in and draw for the Monday paper. But so I draw five cartoon, new cartoons a week, and um, I love drawing local cartoons because nowhere else are you going to see probably see a cartoon on Mayor Stothert or on you know any number of state issues uh the prison issues we've had going on in the state uh cartoons about the governor so i love that and i know that when i draw those cartoons the local politicians are going to see them i can't say that's the case if i draw kim jong-un for example uh, although i do occasionally hear from you know national politicians as well but so it, it's it, it, you know choosing that topic has changed over the years now that we have the the 24-hour news cycle it used to be i'd read the paper and i'd say hey that's a good topic that's going to hold for a couple days i'll put that on the back burner i'll plant some seeds put that into my subconscious let my brain work on that for a couple days and and come back to it and uh and as a tangent that's something that i think we can do too is train our brains to you know be creative and and working with our, our unconscious minds but anyway but now like <laughs> it's it's not it's not even the 24-hour news cycle it's like the five-hour news cycle so i'm drawing one day in advance so on monday i'm drawing for the tuesday edition so not only am i trying to stay on top of the news today i'm kind of trying to predict the future what's still going to be topical tomorrow and is the story going to change and that's that's extremely challenging and lately you know i could draw trump almost every day and i know cartoonists who do and they're friends of mine but i think it's lazy there are also so many other important things to be drawing about and uh so that is sometimes a challenge and i will just 
kind of get a keep a kind of a personal gauge a sense of things so i feel like if i feel like i've been drawing too many cartoons on the president or on national international issues i will you know make sure that i am tuned in to local something local i try to listen in on uh, over here conversations at coffee shops what are what are people talking about um so i i don't know exactly how that works but it it somehow does and there are days when it's an embarrassment of riches and i have multiple ideas on multiple topics and they're all hot they're all timely and i have to i do have to figure out which one i'm going to draw about and that sometimes is difficult um sometimes it's a matter of i'll just go with the strongest cartoon sometimes it's a matter of this topic is far more important or i'll try to guess this is going to be around a while i'll hold on to that for a couple days You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Load up, load up, and bring your friends. It's fun to lose and to pretend. She's overboard, she's self-assured. Oh no, I know, a dirty word. Hello, 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 how low. With the lights out, less dangerous Here we are now, entertain us I feel stupid, contagious Here we are now, entertain us I'm a lotto, an albino A mosquito, my libido I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is cartoonist, writer, and musician Jeff Katerba. So you've mentioned that you consume a lot of news, which clearly would be important for you to inform your creativity and the cartoons that you select and, and you draw. But I also know that you've traveled somewhat, and I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that broadening one's horizons also informs our sense mm-hmm. of the world and, and how perhaps it might inform your creativity. Mm-hmm. But making that assumption, I want to ask about your travels and the degree to which that has shaped your creativity and your outlook on, on life. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a big believer that we, I, you know, we should, the more we can travel, <laughs> you know, whether it's a matter of uh, simply experiencing other cultures and to have a greater appreciation for what we have in the United States or uh, to appreciate, just see how beautiful <laughs> other places can be and interesting. Um, and it does change the brain. So I'm born and raised in Omaha and I know the streets like the back of my hand. And I think uh, traveling has shifted the pathways in my brain in, in a lot of ways. And it has forced me to think differently, uh, just about getting by. I lived in, uh, in Austria for nearly two years, uh, and moved back a couple of years ago. And I was drawing remotely, drawing my cartoons from the Alps. And it is, I, it's difficult to describe, but 
I actually found myself able to think more clearly about Omaha and about Nebraska and the politics here when I was living in Austria. And I don't know if it was just uh, walking the streets in Innsbruck shifted those pathways in my brain. If it was just being away, it gave me a new perspective. Uh, and I was able to go back and draw about topics that I've been drawing. I'm now in my, in my 29th year of drawing cartoons for the world Herald. I've drawn a lot of cartoons on the same, the same topics seem to keep coming up and I was able to get a fresh perspective. You know, I would be gazing at the Alps and drawing the skyline of Omaha and it made me appreciate the skyline of Omaha in a way that I hadn't before when I'm, I was looking at it every day going into the office and I sort of longed for it and, and missed it as beautiful as Austria is and as clean as it is. I missed the grime, not that Omaha is a filthy city, but it's not perfect. And I, I, I missed seeing trash and graffiti, frankly, you know, and that urban, that urban environment. Uh, and also, you know, another experience, uh, you know, just meeting European cartoonists. Um, I was uh, invited and invited again uh, this year. I'm not sure if I'll be going, but to a uh, cartooning festival in, in France and a Charlie Hebdo related festival and where we had full French military security and also amazing Bordeaux wine that was labeled just for our conference. But talking to cartoonists from around the world and seeing their work, I know has had a had an impact on me, if not if not necessarily on my on my political beliefs, but more in the art of it. And I think as an editorial cartoonist, uh, I generally think of myself first and foremost as a journalist, which is appropriate. I love the art part about it, but that's like kind of like the frosting on the cake. That's the fun part of it. But I haven't always given that as much thought as the ideas and the journalism part of it and and getting to spend time with European cartoonists and, and from those from around the world sort of helped me refocus and think about the art. And I know that there have been cartoons that I've drawn differently just because of those experiences. I think it's a fairly small club that is the editorial cartoon um, cohort in, in the world. It is. It, it is very small. And uh, everyone generally sort of knows each other. Um, and certainly here in the U.S., uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small club. And even cartooning in general. I mean, I've had the uh, honor and pleasure of getting to hang out at different conferences with, you know, people who from Pixar, for example. And, and that's always helpful, too, sort of that... Uh, you know, just getting exposed to cartoonists who are doing cartoons in other formats. And I don't know if that has a direct impact on how I work, but uh, in some ways you have to think that it, you know, that it does. I think maybe once you told me it was, there were, there were less than 100 editorial cartoonists in uh, North America. Like yeah, that. I think the number is around 40 full-time newspaper cartoons. Now, there are people who, you know, are doing that freelance or part-time, but that number has dropped. And, and um, the World Herald has always had a, a great tradition of editorial cartooning. I'm the fifth cartoonist in the newspaper's history. And I don't, I hope that readers realize how 
special and wonderful it is that they, and it's not about me, but that the World Herald values values that. I wonder if you have looked to the past or if there is anybody in the world now, you mentioned Charlie Hebdo, if there are any particular inspirations or any particular loves that you have from, from editorial cartoons. Yeah, you know, and you talk about Punch and a lot of those cartoons uh, from, from, you know, back, back in the day, when I was mentioning earlier, the bomb throwers. Uh, and I, I feel like, you know, again, sometimes I've, that role, at least for me, is shifted. And then I feel like I have to be the adult in the room. I don't like to, uh, maybe my caricatures aren't as mean, you know, I, I just can't be mean. I, not, I like to poke fun, certainly, and have a little fun with the caricature, but people can't help how they look. And I would rather focus on the message and what they've said or done uh, and, and criticize that. And regarding your question about looking at other work, I don't often anymore. I used to. Um, when one is starting out to become an editorial cartoonist, there really isn't a university where you can, that I'm aware of, that you can major in it. I certainly studied journalism and art, but I sought out mentors and I sought out, you know, other cartoonists um, and I practiced a lot. And part of that was to look at other cartoons throughout history and contemporary cartoonists. And um, I certainly have uh, favorites. Uh, Steve Sack uh, in Minneapolis, um, maybe one of the most brilliant uh, cartoonists working now. And he's drawing exclusively on an, on an iPad Pro, which I am slowly learning how to draw on. I still do it old school because I love the tactile experience of pen and brush on paper and I love going home with watercolor and ink on my fingers um, so occasionally I'll look at other cartoonists but I, I again I did that a lot early on I don't do that now so much because I don't want to be influenced by them and I would much rather look at um, you know a, a, a painting or a, a sculpture or a film you know that has nothing to do with cartooning and, and studying how a film is cut and edited. Um, and frankly, even, you, you know, YouTube, YouTubers, I have a nephew who's a, a prominent YouTuber and, you know, studying those quick cuts and thinking about how that might impact something I might draw at some point, especially if it's a multi-panel cartoon. Is there a future for editorial cartoons? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, who knows? But I mean... I, you know, satire has been around for for a good long time, and you know who you know and what form it takes in the future, who knows? But um, it, it's hard for me to believe that there wouldn't be some form of satire. Uh, you know, whether it's animation or whether um, you know we're designing we're designing pills that people take, and this cartoon appears in their brain. Um, I don't know, like something from the black mirror, but, um, I, I hope, I hope there's a future. I think so. Coming to a chip near you. That's that's right. I mean, more people are, you know, consuming news now than ever before in all of its various forms. And I do feel like that there is sort of a renaissance, uh, you know, in, in, with cartooning, uh, granted people can now generate a meme or whatever they're called. And, those have become sort of the, you know, the cartoon cartoon replacement. But, um, you know, they're not very skillfully done. Sorry to say, memers. Is that appropriate? appropriate memer? It is now. It is now.
street Have two-tone shoes on my feet Big white tie and a nice new suit And I see her standing there in her boots Sounds of the city, she looks so pretty Glow of the moon running through her head I'm a handsome man, she's a beautiful girl And all I want is to get in her world That's so up my alley That's so down in my soul That's so up my alley That's where I want to go Nighttime streets pounding out of beat The car horn blares like a saxophone This whole damn town has a big band sound She takes my hand and I gone. Dark little corner, a fire escape. Brick wall graffiti, but make no mistake. I've been down the sunny side of life before. And the alley is my dance floor. That's so up my alley. We have such a spectrum of creative ability and the Prairie Cats is one manifestation of that. So tell me just a little bit more about the Prairie Cats. Yeah, we're uh, coming up on our 20th year uh next year i can't believe it um we're, we're a, a jump blues swing band um in the vein of say big bad voodoo daddy or or uh, brian setzer orchestra but it's mostly stuff that i write um i don't actually know how to write the musical notes and it's important when you have four or five horns as we do to um have everything noted out in 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 its uh, uh charted form so um other people in the band <laughs> do that and we'll kind of workshop the songs and I'll hum out a part and I'll say, I think I hear a, a horn swell here and a horn punch there terms that I didn't know before I started this band. I went in blind, blindly, really ignorantly. I should say the same thing with cartooning, really the same thing with everything. When I set out to, you know, write my memoir, when I started out in cartooning, I didn't know how, uh, competitive it was going to be. I had no idea how challenging and uh, difficult it was going to be to start a swing band. I'd always played in rock bands or folk bands where you didn't have to learn how to read music. And, um, and you know, we were just playing guitars and mandolins or whatever, but adding horns and complex arrangements is a whole different different things so uh but we took a took a hiatus and and we've come back and are starting to write some new new music well and you've performed at some interesting places so south by southwest windows on the world of course and the derby lounge so what have been some of your favorite experiences yeah i well, by the you know i mean playing south by was amazing but really playing windows in the world at the world trade center in late june of 2001 will always stand out as the the coolest gig the coolest bar in the world that in my brain still exists and um a few nights before that we had several shows in new york that week and we had also played at the hudson river festival at the base of the uh, world trade center and i'd been back to new york multiple times since 9 11 but i had never been to that spot where the hudson river festival was performed and i was just walking around realizing oh my gosh i'm right here where we played the wednesday night before we played uh, at the uh, Windows in the World a few nights later. And so I stood about where I had stood that night. And uh, I uh, will try not to tear up thinking about it, but I remember standing there on that Wednesday night, gazing up at the Twin Towers and almost looking straight up. And uh, remembering how we had played at the Summer Arts Festival when it was at the old location of the courthouse. And I remember thinking how cool that was to stare up at the Woodman Tower. And now here I was staring up 
at the Twin Towers and thinking a few nights later we will be up there playing. And uh, so I stood there again a few weeks ago and looking up at the Freedom Tower. And um, it was just a personal, poignant, beautiful moment and realizing I got to play there because, um, you know, I followed my dreams and uh, I had goals. And uh, my dad, as I mentioned earlier, was a, a drummer, but he gave up playing music full time when I came along and worked in an office and was not happy. And I vowed from an early age, I am not going to be unhappy because I didn't follow my dreams. Tell me about the lightning experience. The lightning experience. I was 17. I was uh, into watching the weather and my dad was a big weather fan and he had a, a, a crazy ability to predict the weather uh, far more accurately than any meteorologists on TV. And he told me a storm was coming and I was out in our front yard watching uh, the clouds and I could hear some rumbling in the distance, but I actually thought the storm had dissipated and he kept telling me that I should be coming inside. And, and at one point uh, there was a, a, a loud crack. It sounded like uh, an explosion went off in my head and I saw this white ball of light and all of these ultraviolet colors like streaming out from this white ball of light. And I don't know how much of that was the lightning, how much it was my own brain, you know, misfiring or whatever. But uh, in that moment, I realized that I, if not hit directly by the bolt, I was hit by lightning in some form. You can be, it can bounce over to you, can come up through the ground. I had just showered. I was barefoot. I was pretty much doing everything, you know, <laughs> stacking the odds in my favor to get hit by lightning. And I, I, I don't know if it jumped, came, jumped off the tree or up through the ground. I'm not sure. But uh, what I do remember is that I was on the ground in sort of a crouched over a fetal position or something unable to move. And I realized that I was in the process of dying and uh, it was very calm. And, um, I remember thinking, Oh, so this is, this is how it ends. And my only dying wish was to die inside of my house with my family around me. And, uh, slowly <laughs> it seemed like it took hours, but slow, you know, it was probably just a matter of seconds, but I slowly made it to the front door and um, I couldn't, I recognized that that door handle meant something, but I wasn't sure what it was. And at that moment, my, my dad grabbed me and pulled me inside and started slapping me around to bring me to. And my, that was when my mom said, we, we need to take him to the hospital. He's been hit by lightning. And that's when my dad said, nope, I'll give him a shot of medicine. I'll give him some Jack Daniels. <laughs> so he gave me Jack Daniels. I'm on the couch and I can't speak and I'm drooling and he's pouring the JD down my throat. And my, I was the, I'm the oldest five. My siblings were standing there just <laughs> their mouths <laughs> open, just trying to figure out what they're, what they were witnessing. Their, their older brother who just was almost killed by lightning is now getting, getting drunk. <laughs> and then a couple weeks later, that was the summer between junior and senior year of high school. I landed my first cartooning job drawing for the, Omaha South High Tudor school paper. So I think there's a direct link between getting hit by lightning and my becoming a cartoonist. Did that experience that what sounds like a very uh, conscious, if, insofar as 
I can use that expression, mm-hmm. but it was a conscious experience of near death, yep. a withdrawal from that state and coming back to life. Has that shaped the entirety of your life or is it, do you look back on it and just think it was an astonishing, but just a moment in your life? Mm. No, I, I know, I've never thought about that, never been asked that, but I, I do think it was sort of a you know, I don't know another term I can use here, but a BC, AD, whatever, like, you know, before the lightning and like there was something, it, it did seem pivotal and maybe it's all coincidence, but I, I do think of the lightning and then the cartooning thing. And I did have that sense of renewal and like, you know, it, it took me a couple of weeks to feel normal again, but I also remember thinking, wow, I'm alive and I am now doing things that I, because I'm, I'm naturally shy. I was an introvert. Uh, I didn't go out on dates. I played with my model railroad and played guitar and drew in my bedroom. That was all that I did. And suddenly I found myself like going into the school newspaper and boldly saying, Hey, can I draw cartoons for the school paper? What have I done that anyway? I don't know. But it seems to me that, I don't know, that that some shift did did occur. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation today with cartoonist, writer, and musician Jeff Katerba. Jeff, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.